When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunt. I am the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. And I'm a columnist with The Eye newspaper. Today, we're talking about baby boomers and the concept of generations in general. Ian, I think this was my idea. It was. Okay, so that's because I noticed this very crude binary of boomers versus millennials seem to have escalated in recent years and got me thinking about, well, like, how do we, what is the history of identifying, uh, naming, caricaturing generations? How it's developed? Is it useful? Is it just nonsense? Does it depend how you use it? Um, what grabs you about this topic? I just was trying to understand the deep psychological and spiritual differences between us, you as a sort of withering Gen X holdout, and me as a youthful, dynamic millennial. Well, I'm, say, I'm a late Gen X. You are an early millennial. I could not... I could not by any stretch of biology or law be your father. I just want to make that clear. Great. So we've done the anti-Star Wars. I mean, in a way, that's quite reassuring just, to me. Um... So there was no OED in the first two episodes about Jordan Peterson. Sure. But it's back, back, back. <laughs> now, the phrase baby boom appears early as 1945 in reference to uh, maternity oh, wow. hospitals. Huh. Uh, that's not boomer. That's that's Yes, boom. yes, but still. And the birth rate in America had been declining for two centuries up to that point. Wow. Then it suddenly went mental. It actually peaked in 1957. Like it was genuinely uh, like enormous. Um, but Baby Boomer takes a while. There's a great book from 1980 called Great Expectations by Landon Jones um, about the boomers. And he, he starts by talking about all the names that people tried out mm-hmm. before Boomer. You already had Baby Boom, but before somebody thought Boomer, mm. they tried War Babies, Spock Babies, uh, ben- Benjamin Spock, the child oh, care expert, wow. not, not Mr. Spock from Star Trek. Sputnik generation, the Pepsi generation, the rock generation, the now generation, the love generation, the Vietnam generation, the protest generation, and the me generation. <laughs> so, well, some of those kind of stuck around, right? The me, the me generation. Me, that was sort of, that, that was later on, actually. Um, but some of these were obviously tried out. You can, you can date the Sputnik generation very specifically. Yes, yes, yes. So the OED defines baby boomer like so. A person born during the baby boom occurring between the mid-1940s and the mid-1950s following the Second World War. First mention is a syndicated news piece from January 1963, headlined, Baby Boomers Grown Up, Storm Ivy-Covered Walls. Hmm. They were about to enter college, so the name only arrives when the first boomers are in their late teens. Right. Um, this is a year before the Who's My Generation. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's in the air. The abbreviation Boomer doesn't appear until uh, 24th January 1986 in the Toronto Star. The young always go through a period of rejecting the parent generation's values and strictures, and the boomers did it more completely than others. Hmm. Now, it, it seems that even the simple definition is problematic. 
because the US Census Bureau and Pew Research Center, which is where we get the the kind of dividing dates here. Brackets boomers as those born between 1946 and 1964. Mm, that's what I had. Yeah. So we're going to use that definition, even though different authors use different ones. So the youngest boomers weren't even born when the phrase was coined. But anyway, it's very, very dry and literal, that definition. Mm. What does it signify now? What do you think when you hear the word boomer? Insult. Yeah. Absolutely insult. But that's also the shortening. Boomer. Yeah. Right. I mean, when yeah, I was yeah. growing up, I was aware baby boomers were a thing. And I associated it really with the sort of 60s. There and was a baby boomer edition of Questions of Trivial Pursuit. It was like an add-on. <laughs> and it was called Baby Boomer. I had no idea what it meant. I was, it blew my, I was like, I couldn't possibly work out what the phrase baby boomer meant. And it's basically just like lots of questions about the 60s. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. And so you've you got that general... I mean, because a lot of the time, if also, if you started expressing any kind of lefty thought as a teenager, you know, in the 90s, people would always say, oh, you, you, should, you should have been born in the 60s, really. Mm. Shouldn't you? you should have been around in the 60s. You're, you're, not, you're kind of out of time now. You know, that's not the direction of travel. And so there was this real sort of bit of like, that was when, you know, these guys came over and opened everything out in terms of sort of sex and justice and blah, 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 blah. And then you went, oh, shit, but you can't be talking about my parents because that's not how that shit looks from here. So it was always a kind of a weird mixed up category in the first place, because, of course, as much as people talked about that kind of liberation in the 90s, that was just your parents at that point. Well, my mum and dad were both born in May 1946. Oh, right. So, so, so classic. Yeah, my dad too. So my dad was born in, in 46 as well. Really? Yeah. yeah that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, we will get into, of course, the kind of the, the overlaps of generations that mm -hmm. you can have. You know, I'm a Gen X with a boomer parent and you're a millennial with a boomer parent. And so they're, mm -hmm. and they're actually different um, early and late. Whether you appear early or late in a generation is really significant. I, I, I sort of think that if, if you are early or late, you'll never really feel like you belong to those categories. Like I always remember feeling quite jealous of Gen X when I was growing up because at least they had a name and an identity. Yeah. No one used the word millennial about my group huh. until I was kind of in my early 30s until I first spotted that that word. And it was in reference to people who were much younger than me. That's interesting. So I felt like I never really had a place in this, frankly, imaginary categorization <laughs> of humans that's been created. Well, the key thing, I mean, we're going to do, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, generation theory, how generations come to be defined and named and, and, and how useful it is and the, the wrinkles in it and so on. I, I think the key thing to say about the boomers is the boom. It's the size of the cohort. In yes, this book yes. I mentioned, Landon Jones's book, um, he uses the image of a pig passing through a python. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just kind of moves down the body. Fluttering. I'm sure they um, love that. And he also describes it as, as generational tyranny. Uh, there were 76 million boomer babies, only 62 million millennials, and a feeble 55 million Gen Xers. Hmm. Which is why no one talks about you guys, right? Yeah. And the Janet, they're like the forgotten middle child. Get left out. So this means that whatever boomers are doing comes to define the decades. So they're sort of growing up in the suburbs watching TV in the 50s. They're protesting and partying in the 60s. They're seeking sort of fulfillment and spirituality in the mm -hmm. 70s, the, hence the me decade. They're making money in the 80s and they're running the world in the 90s. <laughs> so they basically end up defining more decades than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And as a result, perhaps as a result of this, they're quite unpopular. <laughs> Um, 
Among the things I've read, I've read uh, an article <laughs> called Boomers Ruined Everything, a book called A Generation of Sociopaths, which literally applies the medical definition of sociopathy <laughs> to the boomers. Um, what did the baby boomers ever do for us? Uh, they have been blamed on the left by Francis Beckett for the world they made for their children to live in is a far harsher one than the world they inherited. While on the right, Melanie Phillips blames them for the shattering of the family, the breakdown in civility, feral children. That's me. That was me. The drug epidemic, the burgeoning of mental illness among the young, increasing contempt for the aged, and so on. Oh, Melanie. And we get to 2019 and there's a TikTok meme which sort of like comes to crystallize all of this, which is like, okay, boomer. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that from TikTok originally? Yeah. Oh, wow. Huh. And, you know, very, very recent and yet seemed to really rile people up. A conservative radio host called it the N-word of ageism. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's sort of what... <laughs> We, this is sort of what we're talking about here is we are going to talk a lot about the, the, the distinctive characteristics of, of boomers. But then we're moving on to really this generational warfare, right? Yeah. As it is presented, not as it necessarily exists, but as it is presented in the media. Boomers versus millennials, right? I think there's like a real question to be asked, right? Are generations in a more pitched division against each other oh. than they would be previously? Is the concept of generation even useful or real in any meaningful way? Um, so has something materially changed in our lives and in our attitudes that makes generational war more acute? Or actually, when you get down to it, is this just like another one of those areas where the media and, and maybe people in their worst moments in the pub love to just sort of stoke these divisions and these generalizations that the actual behavior in their day-to-day -day life doesn't reflect? Uh, before we start, I just wanted to kind of uh, flag up a couple of things. Discussion of boomers is massively dominated uh, by America, largely because America came out of the Second World War with immediate prosperity, and they didn't have that period of uh, reconstruction and rationing mm -hmm. and so on. Um, so your classic boomer is essentially an American, and we'll be taking a lot of stats and examples, therefore, from America as the most representative. Talking about Britain as well, but I think if you're going to talk about the kind of archetypal boomer, Yes, we, we, it's funny, but going through this, there is, it's really noticeable where there are similarities with the UK and where there aren't. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, especially in cultural ideas, like it, it, it's quite telling. And in fact, for a lot of this stuff, we can go through the OECD countries and there'll be certain countries that that's just not true for no. at certain moments, Germany, whatever. And some of that will come down to housing policy as, or beliefs in religion or et cetera, yeah, et cetera. You, you can't and be sort of generalizing it's like every country in the world. Yeah, no, no, but, be crazy. But, but it's really striking that in certain areas, yeah. so I mean, one of them would be alcohol consumption by generation. You, It's oh, right really right. similar across a whole range of countries. You know, you look at Sweden, you look at Germany, you look at the UK, the US. So, And, and in those cases, you really think, okay, well, something probably quite profound is happening rather than something that's uh, sort of location specific. Ian's done a lot of stats. I'm mostly on vibes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I just so people know, know what we're talking about here in terms of like the sort of consensus age brackets here of people who are alive today. Yes, yes, brilliant. Right? Yeah. So it's the greatest generation, formerly known as the GI generation, uh, born 1901 to 27. The silent generation, 1928 to 1945. The boomers, as we said, 1946 to 64. Good old Gen X, 65 to 79. Millennials, 1980 to 96. Generation Z, 97 to 2012. And the lot that are currently called the alphas, but may not always be called that, right. uh, 2013 onwards. But probably not any alphas listening 
right now. So it doesn't really matter what we call them. Well, I mean, I, mean, I guess their parents might have it on while they yeah. you know, feed Do them. you call yeah. your children alphas? I don't know. <laughs> When he would do that, he would rub his food over his face. He's a total alpha. The names, the the, the, the history of the names, the etymology of this stuff is just fascinating. Well, there's a real arms race, isn't there, oh. to just try and get in there and name the oh. thing really early on. It, it's really yes. interesting. So we will get into all of this. First, uh, we do need to talk a little bit about the concept of, of generations. Yeah. Like do kind of like the, the really concise version of mm-hmm. this, right? But it's fascinating, I think. Yeah. So for centuries, it was biological. Basically, the time it takes for a son or daughter to become a father or mother, which is like 20, roughly 20 years. Although in the Bible, weirdly, it usually means 40 years. Uh, Karl Mannheim, the Hungarian sociologist who pioneered generation studies, said 30 years. And the current generations, as uh, you may have calculated listening to those dates a minute ago, range between 15 for Generation X and 28 for the greatest generation. Mm. So... It's very fluid. <laughs> um, but until 1961, interesting, the first definition of generation in the dictionary was still biological. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. that stuck around for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I looked on Wikipedia where I do all of my research for these episodes. And, uh, <laughs> and they mentioned the biological before they mentioned the sort of really? social. Yeah, yeah. As a word, generation. Mannheim was writing this crucial essay, The Problem of Generations, in the 1920s. Now, this is when the First World War created the first serious generation gap. The old had sent the young off to die in the trenches, Mm. was the general feeling. Mm. Uh, George Orwell's contemporary Cyril Connolly once said, in those days, whenever you didn't get on with your father, you had all the glorious dead on your side. (laughs) That's very good. Very good. Um, In 1926, (laughs) Ernest Hemingway popularized the phrase lost generation. People born between 83 and 1900 is what we call that now. Um, he claimed he got it from Gertrude Stein, who said to him, in a very bad mood, that's what you all are. All of you young people who served in the war, you are a lost generation. She was like very annoyed mm. with him. She wasn't going, oh, poor you. Yes, yes. Um, and Thomas Wolfe, not the same as Tom Wolfe, writing about the lost generation in the 30s, pointed out something obviously that's obvious, but also you know, really important to think about. You can't choose your generation. He goes, you belong to it too. You came along at the same time. You're a part of it, whether you want to be or not. Mm. Now, what did Mannheim say that was so important to this sort of idea of generations? He's basically trying to work out what it is to say that you're in a generation. And one of the most useful sort of comparisons he has is to say, well, what is it to say that you're in a particular class? Right. Mm. And it's situating you with a particular set of experiences and relations in society. And for him, like the thing that plays a really key role, there are lots of elements to it. And it's, quite, it's relatively complex. And I actually, I thought it was quite elegant and I quite enjoyed reading it, actually, yeah, for a piece quite, of 1920s short, scholarship. Short, it's very, very short. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which short goes a long way with us at the moment. Yeah, we love it. Um, it is this idea of the impact of first impressions. So for him, as you age, you start to create this kind of framework by which you evaluate experiences in life. And I think, by the way, that's a beautiful description of what it is to age. For him, it's like to be old is to have fully develop the framework so every new experience just gets designated into a category, you know, whether it refutes it or not. But to be young is to be kind of moldable. It's like you're still building the framework. So he says, it makes a great difference whether I 
acquire memories for myself in the process of personal development or whether I simply take them over from someone else. I only really possess those memories that I've created directly for myself, only that knowledge that I have personally gained <coughs> in real situations. This is the only sort of knowledge which really sticks. It alone has binding power. And what he means by that is the experiences of at that particular age, at that particular time, group you because they form your sense of what the world is like and your approach yeah. to culture. So the very obvious examples for, you know, from our lifetime would be things like September the 11th and COVID. You know, you go through these things, you've had this really visceral experience of it and a personal one. It's not the same as my grand telling me what it was like during the war. You know, my experience of COVID was obviously very different and starts to form the basis upon which young people construct a partly shared vision of the world. And to the extent that that is partly shared, they can be called a cohort, a generation, because they share that. Right. Phrase comes from 1863 uh, from Emile Littray, the French lexicographer, but sort of nobody picked it up for a bit. It was like you invent a word and then people are like, nah, and then it sort of comes into its own. Uh-huh. I got the impression that, that Mannheim was, was sort of, he wasn't happy with the idea of the zeitgeist. And there was this idea when people used the phrase, the generation of 1914, mm. He was like, well, is that everyone who's alive for the First World War? Can't be. Right. You can't have the same experience if you're 16 or if you're 60. Mm. And it's the same with 9-11. Like, that's a thing that, that, that everybody alive experienced. But if you experience it when you're young, you live in that world that has been created by it. And he was going, well, okay, the, the zeitgeist doesn't work as an explanation because not everybody is, is shaped by events yes. in the same way at the same time. Hence, needing this idea of the of the cohort that you sort of you move through history together. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting about that, right, is that this is not a theory, oddly enough, that directly translates into having you know millennials followed by Gen Z followed by this. Because actually, according to his theory, there might not be a generation for a while. It, it requires you guys to actually think, well, this is a thing that really impacted, and we all kind of recognise it socially. He, you know, there's a point where you're going to have a hundred years, and this stuff just doesn't really happen. So actually, if you were to take his stuff as it is, we'll come on to the different theories in a yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. You would actually be much more likely to say things like, "This is a COVID generation. This is a financial crash generation. Right. This is a Vietnam generation." Would actually be, you know, for particular points, you you would probably situate it much. more more specifically in the historical moment that was experienced by people in their youth than you would this kind of cyclical machine that requires naming every sort of 15 to 20 years. He also has a very, I think, sophisticated concept, which hasn't, you know, I haven't really come across elsewhere, but it certainly makes sense. He talks about a generation unit. Mm. And he goes, well, look, yes, every, yes. every generation is, is divided. So in the case of boomers, one unit would be the student radicals and hippies and so on. It's estimated as about 10 to 15%. Right. Right. <laughs> Another would be conservatives and evangelicals. You know, boomers drove that, the sort of conservative backlash of the 1970s and the mm, real boom in, mm. in religion. Um, so it's like, well, you're talking about boomers. These people were like opposed to each other. And so he's saying that this generational unit, and actually a generation is often defined by, I suppose, what we call like, you know, a vanguard, an elite, the people that represent it. What do you think? If you think of a boomer, say, and you think of someone like, a student protester who burned his draft card and went to Woodstock, mm -hmm. for example. Yeah. Okay, but most people weren't like that. And so right at the very beginning, like Mannheim is already going, well, obviously you can't talk about a generation yeah. as if they've got the same characteristics. He has a really complex, interesting yeah. view of the subject matter. I, I, 
I suspect the subject matter is quite flawed. And once you start talking about these units, you're like, well, maybe we shouldn't be talking about generations here and it's something else. But like, it, he writes very elegantly and perceptively, and he is at the foundation of this stuff. Once you start looking into what generations is, the first name that always comes up yeah. is his, and for good reason. Uh, so there's sort of two theories of generations that arise around this time. One is pulse rate theory, which says that new generations bring new ways of thinking which renew society and shape history, like regardless. That is the cycle of, of history. The other one is imprint theory. New generations are shaped by the historical events of their youth, like you said. And so they're more the result of change than the cause of it. Mm. Now, Mannheim sort mm. of says, well, it's a bit of both, mm -hmm. which it obviously is. Um, well, the Spanish philosopher Jose Ortega y Gasse, who called the generation the most important conception in history, <laughs> favoured the pulse rate hypothesis. And, you know, maybe that has become more dominant, this idea that, you know, and new generations come along and they are named and people talk about them and therefore they shape history. It's funny, but we're in a mess when we, I mean, when we talk about it in normal conversation in a newspaper or whatever, it's actually a mess of both of them. People have them very, very vaguely defined in their heads. You know, they'll, they'll use these categories, these names, and, and there's an assumption that there must always be a generation. They wouldn't sign up to Anheim's thing of like, well, maybe there just wouldn't be one. It's all depending on how you think. Yeah. And yet uh, they are very aware of the fact that the events that are taking place that impact them are the defining feature of what would constitute them. So it's it's kind of all mixed well, up. For example, together. why do alphas start in 2013? Like if it was if yes. it, if it was history, will you go maybe start after the financial crisis of 2008? Maybe yeah. start with COVID. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like well, what exactly. was it about 2013? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like that other idea is just like well, gen doesn't matter what history is doing generations are happening on this sort of semi-regular yeah. cycle. Or even meaningfully, I think you you would put a generation mark where you can only remember a world with the internet and probably a different yeah. generation mark if you have any memory of the world before the internet because that seems like a really f fundamental yeah. distinction in human experience. Um, so let's talk about a really uh, valid way of trying to look at these issues. The best person on this by far is Bobby Duffy from the Policy Institute at King's College, uh, London. And basically, there's three explanations for how all attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors change over time. Three. The first one is period. And that's just something happens, typically, and the whole of society changes as one. So if you take France... Uh, before 2015 to 2016, you have very low rates of concern about terrorism among all age groups. And then you have a series of terror attacks and the rate of concern about terrorism skyrockets in the exact same way for all the age groups. Yeah. Okay? That's period, the period effect. The other is life cycle. Life cycle is something that happens as you process through life. And the obvious one for this is like being a healthy weight. Like generally speaking, no matter when you're born, you are going to become a less healthy weight as you get older. Mm -hmm. And all different generations will experience that in the same way, but at different times yeah. because they're at a different point in the life cycle. The third one is cohort. And this is different attitudes for age groups as a result, typically, of socialization and the kind of things that you have experienced. So an example of this is religious attendance. Religious attendance actually has a period effect. So you, you see a decline for, for all groups. But if you look at a graph 
where the lines represent different generations on religious attendance. I mean, it's literally just like looking at like a ripple in a pond. Mm. You know, it's like each generation is just a slab down, a slab down until you get to Gen Z, where basically like religious attendance has ceased to exist. Yeah. You know, um, so that typically speaking, when you look at these things, when we look at whatever it is, whether it's views on council culture, whether it's, you know, how often people have sex, whether it's running, you, you, or, or whether it's house ownership, it's typically one of these three or two of them or all three working in combination. That's the valid way of looking at things without falling into the kind of Daily Mail, don't they just eat avocados, those bastards mentality. We'll get to that. <laughs> so the next big moment for generation theory, like many sorts of fields of inquiry, it kind of paused between like 33 and 45 <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> um but then after the Second World War, you know, it really comes back in a big way because youth culture, which has been bubbling up for a while, becomes a phenomenon. Uh, the phrase youth culture doesn't appear until 1958. Wow. Weird, according to the OED. Huh. This is the birth of the teenager as a really distinct phase between child and adult. This means that generations are important for marketing, not just sociology, because mm -hmm. companies want to sell to the new generation. In 1945... The novelist Alex Comfort, who will later become famous for writing The Joy of Sex, mm. big boomer book, mm. becomes the first person that I could find on newspapers.com, you know, the amazing archive. Yeah. First person ever to be described as the voice of a new generation. Wow. Like that concept is almost like huh. comes out of the Second World War suddenly. In 1951, Time magazine coins the phrase silent generation to describe people born between 28 and 45. This was a generation that had not been named. Right. Which is often the case. Generations just get named very, very late. Mm. Uh, I think now we've reached the point where they're being named as soon as they're born or before they're born. Mm. Um, so there's obviously an interest in, in, in generations there. But actually, when we talk about generations now, we are mostly influenced, without knowing it maybe, by William Strauss and Neil Howe, these two great entrepreneurs of generational studies who've managed to turn it into a lot of books, uh, successful <laughs> consultancy and so mm -hmm. on. Good luck to them. Uh, and their first book... <laughs> there's, a, there's a certain sort of lilt to the way that you say good, good luck, luck to them that makes me conclude that you think grifters. But I'm, I'm not entirely <laughs> no, sure. They're just, you know, they don't know how to get their money. <laughs> uh, their 1991 book, Generations, The History of America's Future, 1584 to 2069, which is a great subtitle. <laughs> so their big idea is quite contentious. They upholsterate people who think that generational personalities repeat in cycles, idealist, reactive, civic, and adaptive, which drive history in predictable ways. In a later book, they extend this all the way back to 1433. Now, I'm not actually going to explain what those mean, because I don't think that that's true, because they're so confident about this, that they constantly think they can predict when the next crisis will strike, how future generations will react, and so on. Um, Steve Bannon, made a whole film based on their book, The Fourth Turning, An American Prophecy. It's never a good sign. No, pretty dark. It's pretty wacky stuff. So don't worry about the uh, about the cycles. But there's, still, there's a lot of good sort of data and interesting things in there. And one important idea that I think is, you know, really important to bear in mind, mm. which I haven't really thought about, is the difference between both ends of a cohort, because each generation is parented by a mixture of the previous generation and the one before that. Right. So some Gen Xers, young Gen Xers, for example, were, were parented by... Silent generation, yeah. later ones yeah. by boomers, right? And so they've got different parenting styles. They've got different experiences of history. If yeah. you're a boomer, were you born to rationing? Or long after that was over. So 
That's how you can get early boomers are accused of raising confused, neglected, divorced, damaged Gen Xs, mm. while later boomers apparently raise pampered snowflake millennials. That, I have to say, makes very strong intuitive sense. Right. And because when you're talking about early and late cohort, you know, the teenagers involved in Beatlemania in 63 were boomers. Mm. So were the ones in 76 who were going to Sex Pistols gigs <laughs> or to discos, right? <laughs> These are all boomers and they were already reacting. Like the second wave was already reacting against the first wave. Mm. Um, now, Strauss and Howe, because they're entrepreneurial, yeah. are like mad for definitions. They're, they're lilt again. Yeah. They're literally naming, making up names for generations going back to 1584, which is, <laughs> you know, which, which like nobody, it's just weird behavior. And what's weird is that it's in 91, right? The year of Douglas Copeland's Generation X, the year of Nevermind. They insist on calling Gen X, this, this new generation, the 13ers. Because mm. they're the 13th generation since the Declaration of Independence, and they're unlucky. So the very year that, that Generation X becomes a thing, yeah, yeah. They're not, and they, they, they still insist on not using it. And yet they go, <laughs> and the next generation, you know, who would have been very young at that point, they go, well, they're going to be called millennials. Hmm. Yeah, and yet I remember, probably like you did, Generation Y being a thing. And then uh -huh. it came back around yeah, to millennials, yeah, yeah. which Strauss and Howard actually made up in 91. So it's really weird how they get named. There's a whole process of consensus. And they call, talk about the GI generation. And then Tom Brokaw, the American newsman, writes a book called The Greatest Generation in 98. And now mm. greatest generation is the thing. Yeah. So it's yeah. very weird. It's all very up for grabs in a weird way, which is mm -hmm. why I think alphas might not always be alphas. So look, Ian, skeptics say, right, that this is, they've got two allegations. One, this is basically just marketing. And two, it's akin to like astrology on a massive scale. <laughs> and there is no, there's just no validity to the idea of the cohort. Do you mean for the Strauss theory, for, for Pulse in general? Just generation or? theory in, in, in general. Like the super skeptics just go, no, nah, this is just like, a, it's just like astrology. It's basing everything on where you're born. Look, we're surely going to find here. Is it, is it a bit of both? <laughs> yeah, I'm so, not again. No, 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 it's fair. No, because that's... <laughs> no, and that, that should just... Should we just go ahead? I think it's just going to be our strapline. We're going to make mugs with that sentence on it. We are going to be the worst caricature of centrist dads. It's a bit of both. It is. It's obviously a little bit of both. There's certain... There's no way of denying it. You know, you can, you can look at the data. There's certain areas, cultural, economic, where there are really distinct differences and attitudes, uh, experiences and attitudes between generational groups, between people of different ages, mm -hmm. right? And you can obviously the, the exact cutoff point is always going to be completely arbitrary. Right. But, but, you know, it is there. Um, and there are other areas where it, this is essentially utilized by people who do not have very good interests at heart to channel a bit of the sort of hatred and suspicion of the young towards set up categories of look at these guys, you know, with the avocados and the and the yoga. And that just seems like a very cynical sort of way to behave. But it is absolutely true that there must be some validity to this idea. I also think, by the way, once you accept it, you've got to be pretty vigilant not to let it take over your thinking because right. it is just not, you know, there's nothing to be learned by trying to think of the difference between the 60s and the 80s in terms of ideology by thinking exclusively in generations. You have to look at sort of ideology and, you know, inflation, the material condition. Right. You know, and it would be absurd. And, and, and I think what we're trying to establish here is that generational theorists themselves are going, well, look, you know, 
depends whether you're at the beginning or the end of the cohort. You know, it depends which generational unit you're in. Mm. You know, boomers yeah. are actually, in America, the most politically polarized generation. Yeah. So to yeah. say that boomers think this or boomers think that is, again, nonsensical. There's something there. It's a useful idea. But for God's sake, don't go around sort of just making this like the kind of the explanation for everything. I mean, we are technically in different generations. We're not that many years apart. I don't feel this great. How do I speak to this millennial? You say that, but I, I think of this huge chasm that separates us, just really mostly in terms of physical vitality, but but also no, but that's in terms of... That's life cycle. That's not, that's not cohort. My weakness is life cycle. <laughs> Uh, this is our chance to say thank you to our Patreon backers. Seriously, guys, especially recently, where there's been a real kind of flood of Patreon support. It is quite hard to state how much we appreciate it to the point that we have conversations with each other where we express genuine human emotion about it. You wouldn't know that listening to us speak in public, but we are actually capable of these things and we do feel them. So thank you in particular this week to Cynthia, Natasha Hobday, Adam Jackson, Paul Crompton and Dia Mishra. Cheers, guys. To find out more about subscribing to Origin Story and all the exclusive benefits that you get if you do, click on the link in the show notes. There is a famous book from 1979 called The Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash. Do you know mm. this one? No, no. Um, absolutely lambasting. Essentially, the boomers. He's not framing it like that, but no. that is the end of the me generation, right? Um, this 1980 book I was talking about, Great Expectations, again, you know, really quite uh, critical of the boomers. It's as early as 1980. Uh, in 92, Strauss and Howe wrote a 1922 article about the boomers and, even though it's 1992, the 13ers still. still wow. wow. Still trying to make that happen. <laughs> Every phase and arena of life has been fine, even terrific, when boomers entered it and a wasteland when they left. What 13ers want from boomers is an apology mixed in with a little generational humility. In a poll, 20-somethings were asked if they would like to be like the boomers, and four out of five said no. Which is weird, because the youngest boomer was still a 20-something in 92. But what I'm saying, though, is that the critique of the boomers and some of the stuff that you're going to say, some of the, the, the generalizations, mm -hmm. they've been around since, like... Well, some since the 60s, mm -hmm. certainly since the late 70s, you know, this idea that they're in tension with a resentful younger generation who blames them for things that have gone wrong goes back at least till the early 90s. Yeah. So none of this is like, okay, boomer is like a new phrase, but blaming boomers is a long and uh, some say honourable tradition, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Let's see how much honour there is in it. Let's do the chart sheet, shall we? Yeah. Right, so charge number one. Boomers had it easy. Okay. So I'm going to start this with a, a one of, perhaps the classic boomer song, uh, We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel, born 1949, right? So he had a 21-year-old visitor to the studio who was actually a friend of John Lennon's son, Sean. Mm-hmm. He went, it's a terrible time to be 21. And Billy Joel says, yeah, I remember when I was 21, I thought it was an awful time. We had Vietnam and drug problems and civil rights problems and everything seemed to be awful. And the friend replied, yeah, yeah, but it's different for you. You were a kid in the 50s and everybody knows that nothing happened in the 50s. <laughs> so Billy Joel basically writes a song starting when he was born. Uh -huh. And so let's take somebody born in 1946. Like 
my parents, your dad, right? Mm -hmm. So this is like very first year of Boomer, right? Uh, as a little kid, it's the Korean War and the H-bomb. Uh, in their late teens, it's the Cuban Missile Crisis and the assassination of JFK. Early 20s, the Vietnam draft lottery, Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy are assassinated, riots. 27, energy crisis, recession, and Watergate. Mm. Uh, and then the 30s, uh, nuclear anxiety again, and uh, the AIDS crisis, and a recession, right? So obviously it's weird to just go, you guys didn't have anything to worry about. But materially, 1946, Fortune magazine declared the great American boom. And they meant the fertility, but they also meant economy, education, housing, science. Yeah. This is a large reason why it is more an American concept, because you can't make those generalizations about Europe, right? It's true, although, you know, once you... Obviously, we have a longer tail to the Second right. World War experience economically. But nevertheless, you know, up, and we covered this in the neoliberalism episode, but... Up until the 70s, when you start getting the disaster of sort of inflation and et cetera, um, that's the sort of golden Keynesian period. You know, this is the period where we have elections with posters like, you never had it so good. You know, th this is a period is. of increasing material wealth and prosperity. They are building houses. It's, it's, a, it's a golden age in fighting infectious diseases between mm -hmm. about like the 40s and the, and the 70s. Some people were saying there will never be another new infectious disease. Right. This is pre -AIDS. Turns out that didn't work. You know, put a man on the moon and so forth. So, so a lot of people you know, do look back at this as a time of great achievement, of great prosperity, of what you might say the Homer Simpson lifestyle. Yes, or yes. You can get yeah. a solid blue collar job where you can, you know, you can mm -hmm. run a home and, and all that lot. But like, if you read anything about the 70s and you read about anything about nuclear anxiety and so mm. on, it was like there was actually an enormous amount, you know, to be very worried about. There were many, many panics and depressions and, and so on. Yeah. And yet you could say underpinning it, it's like, okay, this was the American century, right? This was a, a boom time. And, and, and Western Europe mm. experienced a lot of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Charge sheet number two. Boomers take up too much space. Okay. So we've talked about the size, the sheer weight of numbers. Mm. And that really, really matters. Like the, the boomness of it all. <laughs> Okay, so, so the book came out this year by Gene M. Twenge called Generations. He's mm -hmm. a generation expert. I, I think there's quite a few dubious claims in it. Right. But there's some kind of, yeah, some interesting sort of data as well. She claims, and this seems legit, that bigger, noisier generations just don't have to compromise like the smaller ones. Right. Because they're right. always setting the tone. So Gen X just had to kind of make accommodations in a way that the boomers, being like the pig passing through the python, yeah, yeah. it's like they, they get to set the tone. You know, it's funny, you can find this back in 89 in the 20th anniversary of Woodstock. Huge resentment of the cultural domination. It's like, I can't believe the Stones are still touring. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. well, you just wait and see. <laughs> um, in, the, in the 90s, a lot of people involved in Britpop were like, are we just redoing the 60s? Mm -hmm. Like, we're really into the Beatles and the Italian job and, right, and right. swinging. Are we just reenacting swinging London? And this is just an, like an echo of the real thing. So there's a real sort of anxiety and kind of a fascination with the 60s, but also kind of, you know, some sort of resentment or, you know. That's interesting. The, okay, maybe we don't have our own culture here. But there have been no Generation X presidents. My God, that is incredible, by the yeah. way. That really is incredibly striking. Yet we have three, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump, born in the summer of 1946. Oh, wow. Like three from the same boomer summer. 
Mm. No Gen X. We've had four boomer prime ministers, but only two Gen X. Uh, David Cameron and Liz Truss. So it's one and a half. No, again, not, not performing that well. <laughs> no, not, not, not really. And, it, and if you go back to before Generation X was named Generation X, the first name before 13ers mm. was originally the Baby Busters. Hmm. And their whole identity was just being like weaker than the boomers. Yeah, and yeah, even yeah. X just meant like, a, like an absence like a, like a, a mystery, you're, mm. you're not there. This is not. I don't have uh, any Gen X like resentment here. <laughs> no, no, it's not coming across at all. <laughs> but there is certainly a sense. Say that if you're growing up with the '90s, you were being ruled by boomers, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Bill Clinton, mm. and you were still being so dominated by boomer pop culture. And, you know, boomer nostalgia, any of like film like uh, Forrest Gump, you know, mm-hmm. huge boomer nostalgia fest. I mean, when it comes to the political element of this, culturally, that part doesn't really matter. But because they're really big, mm. they're a really big voting group that's yes. just moving its way up the age range. Right. And insofar as there are economic qualities to these groups, and in the case of boomers, there really, really are. Yeah. They can therefore put the pressure for a more generous appraisal of their material circumstances, for instance, on assets. And that pushes the onus to a less generous appraisal, for instance, on income uh, through the political system. So that that political weight by number becomes quite dangerous when it's connected to the material circumstances. Absolutely. And we will turn turn to that, I think, uh, further down the charge sheet. So, number three. <laughs> I'm quite enjoying this. Boomers are smug narcissists who think they're always right. Okay. So, they do love themselves. <laughs> Pew Research, which does the most extensive survey uh-huh. in 2015, found that boomers had by far the strongest generational identity. When asked if they identified with the phrase, our generation, only 40% of millennials and 58% of Gen X said yes, but 79% of boomers Wow, did. that is... Quite striking. And then if asked if they had a favourable opinion of our generation, 53% Gen X, 57% Millennials, 83% Boomers. My word. Right. So they they do kind of think that they are slash were right. And there's various, you know, theories of this. And some people are like obsessed with, uh, you know, Benjamin Spock's child rearing. His first book came out in 46. So he really influenced that. And he says it's because that they were, they were pampered. There's also a sense of like, oh, we've had this terrible war and we want you to have the best. And there's, there's a lot of different theories about why this should be so, but the data is kind of still there. And again, Strauss and Howe in 91, boomers still see themselves as the embodiment of moral wisdom. On matters of right or wrong, in fact, most boomers now care as little for the opinions of their 13er juniors. Jesus, <laughs> I they really won't let it go. No, as they ever cared for the opinions of their GI and silent elders. And they quote history professor Alan Kors, a generation that when young trusted nobody over 30, today trusts nobody under 30. I think because boomers had this idea that they were remaking the world mm. and they were remaking the individual in terms of like, sex and drugs and spirituality and, and mm. values and rise of individualism. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's definitely something in there that they're a generation that felt like we changed the world and we're going to continue to change the world. Whereas Generation X just never grew up with that sense. They never felt like we are changing the world. We are redefining everything. So it's quite hard to have that generational vanity. 
And the thing is, it's true. <laughs> you know, the world of 1945 to the world of, you know, 1968, it's, it's just... Yeah. You know, those walls that got broken down, and of course we can come up with any number of examples and we could do it through legislation on sort of censorship and abortion and divorce, as well as, you know, the classic sure. Woodstock thing. It's obviously really profound. Part of this subject is not just sort of politics and sociology. It's also kind of about what it is to be human, because I think it goes back to that Mannheim thing of as you age, you make the scaffolding, the conceptual scaffolding. Mm. And after a certain point, it's really hard for anything to challenge any of that scaffolding. And it doesn't matter how radical you were when you were 20, by the time that you're sort of 50, 60 years yeah. old, it's really hard for that stuff not to have sort of fossilized and calcified so that you're appalled by whatever someone's doing. You think for reasons that you can articulate, but in reality, probably just for the mere fact that they are young and different. Well, you, you, you basically confuse everything cohort with, with life cycle. So instead of thinking mm. a lot of these things were wonderful because young people change the world and bring in new ideas, mm. you just go, no, 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 it's my cohort of young people who are now middle-aged people. Your young people, their ideas are rubbish. Yes. So there's, I mean, I know this is kind of, <laughs> this, this is the sort of generalization, but like the studies do bear out the idea that, that, that boomers are, are unusually pleased with themselves as a generation. <laughs> um, boomers are to blame for everything you don't like about the 60s. Okay, so here we were talking like cohort period, right? Mm -hmm. People talk about the boomers as mm -hmm. if they are the 60s, if it's the same thing. I mean, in fact, the oldest boomer was only 23 on New Year's Eve 1969. Uh, most of the people who shaped the 60s were silent generation. So Martin Luther King, Gloria Steinem, the leading Black Panthers, the leading Stonewall protesters, Susan Sontag, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, Bob Dylan... Aretha Franklin, whoever, mm -hmm. right? The politicians and justices who were liberalizing society, whether that's Earl Warren's Supreme Court yeah. in the US or Roy Jenkins as Home Secretary over here, they were greatest generation. Yeah, so, that's fascinating. You know, one, okay, boomers really can't take credit for a lot of what happened in the 60s. They might well have been into it, but they weren't driving it. Um, but then I kind of feel bad for them because they get blamed for literally just the way the world is now, mm. right? So I've seen some writers, they even criticize them for neoliberalism, right? Which they, sure, they voted for in large numbers, particularly in America for Reagan. But, you know, Reagan and uh, Thatcher and the, the main economists, they were like greatest generation. They were like two generations back. Hmm. So it's like, okay, so you're going to blame them for the pill, and LSD, but also neoliberalism. It's sort of like everything you don't like about the world since, you know, mm. since the 60s can get pinned on, on them. Again, we're really living with sort of stereotypes and it's like boomer equals the 60s. It's mm. like boomer is someone shaped by the 60s, but it's not actually somebody driving pretty much any of the key events with the one exception of the student protests towards the end mm -hmm. of the 60s. Mm -hmm. Everything else is like older people. Right. Number five, boomers are setouts. So we touched on this earlier. This mainly starts with the spiritual questing and the health crazes of the 70s. Tom Wolfe writes a famous piece called The Me Decade. And People magazine says, in the 60s, we tried to change the world. In the 70s, we decided to change ourselves. <laughs> and this leads to books like The Culture of Narcissism, where they're, they're short-termist and self-absorbed and attention-seeking and, and, and shallow and so on. And then we get the avarice of the 80s, where boomers vote overwhelmingly for Reagan. Mm -hmm. 
1986, 64% of boomers said they'd become more conservative since the 60s <laughs> and outnumbered liberals two to one. Oof. So this is a genuine, I mean, they're literally going, oh yeah, yeah, I have moved to the right. Yeah. Now it's understandable because the country was moving to the right. Former student activist Todd Gitlin said they went from jacuzzi to jacuzzi. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> Take the rest of the day off. <laughs> So this is this is the invention of, of of the yuppie and so on, and I think that it's a direct response to the kind of hippies getting rich mm. um, that the Gen X obsession with selling out comes from. Uh huh. You know, it's like selling out is the worst thing. That kind of mm. real kind of you know horror of commerce and this idea that the people that taught the most about um, liberation and the freedom of rock and roll now just seem to be like cashing in yeah. um, so i mean that, i mean i think i think that's a totally legit response so again i think yeah they kind of did sell out it, but that's because there were unrealistic expectations if if your idea is just like there's going to be a revolution yes. we're going to change the world you know, don't trust anyone over 30, which originally actually just meant the old communists. It was a new left slogan. It was very specifically, don't listen. I did listen. not know that. Yeah, yeah. It was like, don't listen to the old left. Don't listen to the tankies, essentially. Right, right. Um, but that became a more generalized slogan. It's very striking. The movie The Big Chill is about that. If your youth has been so celebrated, it seems a bit of a cheat to then, in affluent middle age, to go, but this is also great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, number six, and final charge. Boomers failed to fix major problems and bequeathed a more dysfunctional world than the one they inherited. You may notice it is much less pithy than the other charges. Yeah, so this is the big charge, right? And it depends who you're reading. Everybody sort of agrees on this, but Helen Andrews, very conservative, writes, the baby boomers have been responsible for the most dramatic sundering of Western civilization since the Protestant Reformation. Fucking hell. Um, you know, breaking up the nuclear family. This is the conservative mm-hmm. allegation. Um, David Willits, you remember the Tory minister? He, yeah, sure. Yeah, he wrote Two a very points. good early sort of anti-boomer book called The Pinch. Um, yes, he did. He did. Yeah. He was very good on this. Yeah. And he pointed out more things like, you know, failures to invest in infrastructure, failures to uh, deal with climate change, cutting taxes while creating, not preparing enough for uh, pensions in, mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in old age. And there are lots of economic factors here in terms of like that when they were growing up, tax was much higher, the national debt was paid off, there was full employment, there were huge building programs, uh, you know, the the moon program, Mm -hmm. all of these things that faded away, that they didn't have their replacements. And actually the best book, this is weird, considering it's called Generation of Sociopaths and it's written by a venture capitalist. Uh, It is, is that book, Bruce Cannon Gibney. I can't quite place him politically, but he sort of blames them for stagnation and short-termism. He calls it me first and and damn the consequences. Uh Uh, And just like neglecting things, leaving problems for other generations, sometimes manifesting itself, for example, in in nimbyism. That the kind of the hippies of the 60s and now they're like... Please don't build this new housing block in Berkeley because yeah, it's yeah. obstructing my view. Uh, the government's loss of faith in big tech programs, the way that that actually became more of a private sector mm-hmm. thing. And I think there are lots of ways in which um, you can feel that something sort of ran out of steam and that the boomers were not giving as much to the young generations as they had received from the older ones. And perhaps 
the biggest one of those is is what you're talking about earlier, policies for older people. Mm-hmm. How it shapes legislation, the pension bill, basically, the society is paying. Yeah. Um, just going to wrap this up with Strauss and Howe in 91 mm-hmm. again. Make a very optimistic prediction. You tell me if it came true. To avoid raising the burdens on younger generations, they, the boomers, will leave their peers with a purchasing power below what the GIs and silent will have enjoyed. Boomers will derive self-esteem from knowing they are not receiving awards from the community. Thanks to boomer asceticism, the proportion of 2020 national income spent on elder medical care may rise little, if at all, above what it is today. But look, I'm sure that they've come up with the equation that can predict human behavior hundreds of years from now. Holy shit. This was described in 2006 when the first boomers turned 60 as boomageddon. Uh, And I think that takes us to the charge sheet against the millennials. So here is the anti-millennial charge sheet. One, millennials need to stop buying avocados and put the money toward a mortgage. Yes. This, which you see uh, really quite alarmingly often, typically in the pages of the Daily Mail, but there's a Barclays press release, quite recent. It was headlined, Small Swap Prefices, which makes me want to fucking die, could save millennials up to 10.5 billion a year. But there is a political message in this stuff, right, which is that the fact that you can't afford a home is actually because you're eating too many avocados, because you can't control your cappuccino habit, because you're slovenly in the manner in which you manage money. On the bare bones of it, it is false. Um, and about worse than false, it's pretty much the opposite of reality. So, I mean, way back, I mean, look at 1989, the young and the old used to spend pretty much the same amount on right. um, as a percentage of their income on non-housing consumer goods, so clothing, entertainment, travel, eating out. 2014, the old spend about 20% more. So actually, in terms of how much you waste on, we call it waste, on having a good quality life all, with joy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you trivial young people, uh, actually, they're less bad at that than the older. What this comes down to really is what has happened with assets. And that's the crucial part. And I think it's quite hard. I, I think what happens with baby boomers is people will say, well, it's easy for you because you could buy houses for, you know, 15 quid. And now we're all, we're all buggered. And I think for, for a lot of baby boomers, they, they remember what housing was like when they were young. And actually, it was fucking terrible. Like, so in 1970, only a third of British homes had central heating. I have no memory. Of it. In, all the way through my life, every room was warm if you mm. wanted it to be warm. There was nothing just one room with the heater was warm, right? So, I mean, actually, what I think happens emotionally and psychologically when you get that division is that that's the place where the mind goes, you know, for someone that's 70 years old right now, let's say, instead of what's happened with assets. And what's happened with assets has been completely disastrous. So we know what's happened to house prices. They've tripled between the 1970s and 2019. As millennials got frozen out, and to a certain extent, Gen X got frozen out of the housing market, they were kept in the rented market. The rented market had a a secondary problem, particularly in this country, which is that we stopped building social housing and we started selling the social housing. And that leaves you with waiting lists, people, you know, hundreds of thousands strong. Now, that cohort then goes into the rented sector. So then the rents go up. You can't afford to rent either or the renting conditions you have kind of lack dignity. You're told whether you can have a pet, whether, you know, you can color the walls. 
And for a lot of millennials, you basically end up having to eat. Well, you've got two options, right? Option number one is have rich parents. And option number two is live at home with your parents. Because if you're frozen out in that manner, that's really where you get to. And, and our suspicion, by the way, for some of the other social effects that we see yeah. with young generations is that it's to do with that delayed adulthood by virtue of what happens with property. Slightly morbid footnote to that. Mm -hmm. um, it's pointed out by a couple of the, the authors that I read. Because of longer life expectancy, the children of boomers aren't inheriting around the same age that the boomers inherited. Oh, wow. Oh, my God, of course. So that's yeah, another yeah, kind yeah. of like financial inequality. Yes, yes. It's not like anybody wants you know, your parents to die earlier, but it does mean that is a kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a real difference between cohorts. Yeah, yeah. So look, I mean, then the political power of baby boomers comes in and you see protections for assets, especially around property, around stocks and shares, uh, and pensions. And also, of course, the protection for pensions. Boom, we get them. And yet at the same time, what's happening to income is truly atrocious. And this is all 2008. So 2008 is the really kind of biblical moment, I think, for this kind of stuff. And that is the time when all the anti-boomer stuff really ticks up, ticks isn't it? Off. Exactly. Yeah. And you see this everywhere. So looking at average disposable real incomes for generations at the same age, in different sort of time segments, you see it everywhere. So US, UK, Spain, Italy, Norway, Finland, Denmark, across the board, you see something very, very similar to different extents, obviously. You see something very similar. Like boomers, at the precise age, when you take the timestamp, their income was 26% up on the generation before them. Gen X, it slowed right down. It was just 3% up on where the boomers were when you get to 2008. The millennials, it's down 4% on Gen X. And that point, it's one thing to think we've slowed down an improvement. Yeah. To think that you've gone into reverse, I think that is like a really profound psychological thing. For well, that, that I think is the biggest thing. It's like where, where in OK Boomer, Jill Filipovich's book... Um, which is very reasonable, actually. But she does go, look, the, the whole point is the millennials were the first generation that thought they were going to be worse off yeah. than their parents. That is a massive shift and explains where a lot of this anger comes from. We can talk as much as we like about um, how things like the First World War got rid of our sense of the inevitability of human progress. And blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that shit is deep inside the human heart. You know, and when you go against it, when people start to think that progress is not only stalled, but is now reversing in material terms, they tend to get very cross indeed. <laughs> and the anger usually goes somewhere. Well, let's get to the juicy stuff. Charge number two, millennials are boring Puritans who don't drink or take drugs. Right. Weirdly, not true for drugs, kind of true for drink. And by the way, I think when we're talking about millennials here, we're basically talking about millennials and Gen Z. Um, so actually, drugs are very strange. I would not have expected these patterns. So you ask American 17 and 18-year-olds uh, how many of them had had cannabis in the previous 12 months. In the 70s, 50% of them yeah. had done that. In the 80s and 90s, that this is during the Reagan sort of period, it actually plummets to 20%. And now, 20,000 onwards is around 35%. So actually, we're on an increase in drug use, but only compared to the 80s and 90s, not to the 70s. Alcohol, it is completely true what they say. It is a massive generational effect, and we see it all over the place. US, Sweden, Germany, Australia, most of the OECD. It is just really quite consistent decline, particularly in the, in the number of people... Um, who say that they drink uh, five nights out of the week. 
and also in the number of um, 13 to 15 year olds who said that they've tried alcohol. So it's just going down and down and down to the point where it's almost non-existent among Gen Z to be someone who says that they drink five times out of the week. It's almost a spit. We just don't know why. It could be because um, there's a theory, which is that alcohol usage moves in cycles in societies. It's fun. People do it. As they do it more, there's more warnings about the health impacts. The warnings take hold. People stop doing it. And maybe there's these trends. But genuinely, it's sort of an area for study and people are fascinated. They're not entirely sure why it's happening. Okay, so millennials, I noticed, I think they're described in more book as serial killers because they're constantly killing things. They're killing alcohol, cars, marriage, comedy. Uh, one of the things they're killing is sex. Um, charge three, millennials have stopped having sex. They haven't, obviously, but they are delaying sex for longer. There's a really clear decline in the proportion of young people, uh, 15 to 18, who've lost their virginity. Now, look, some of this is um, life cycle. You know, you, when you're young, I mean, obviously in our heads, it's like young people sex all the time. Older people never have sex. In fact, actually, it, it can be quite hard to have sex when you're young because lots of times you're still living in your parents' house, right? Or you're not in a, in a stable relationship. And in those situations, you know, it's going to be harder for you to be having uh, regular sex. So some of it's life cycle. And we have previously seen Gen X catch up to baby boomer levels as they went through the life cycle. But we do start with a lower number for millennials and for Gen Z. So there's some distinction there. However, the real drop in sex is everywhere. Uh, everyone is having less sex. <laughs> We've gone full anti-bonobo is my wow. thing. It's kind of extraordinary. So you look at the stats on median number of times someone had sex in the last month, and it's just been plummeting since the 90s. And again... Really international, US, UK, Sweden, Australia, Finland, mm. Spain, Italy, Japan. Like the stats for Japan are a disaster. It's like basically Japan has just forgotten what it is to have sex. So look, the median number of times in the last month was five times in the UK in 1990. It's three times a month by 2010. And that is not the young. That is mainly married people and the middle-aged. So something is happening in society. Right. There are some distinctions okay. with younger people, but predominantly, if someone's killing sex, it's married so people. So again, we're talking a period, period rather than cohort, if, it's, if everyone's doing it, right? Yeah, so it's, it, in fact, all of those things are in there at the same time. There's a little bit of cohort there, right. but there's more importantly, it seems like life cycle effect and there's period effect. Because one thing I, well, I had noticed, but socially, I, I haven't got the data on this, but it does seem like, you know, with things like Me Too, there was, there was definitely a sense that a lot of sex that people were having might have been quite bad. <laughs> and, and the people don't really want that. So what's seen as being puritanical and anti-sex? You know, somebody on Twitter going, I don't want to see any sex scenes in movies. Okay, that's it's silly. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea that you would not want to have sort of harassment sex seems to be quite reasonable. So that, that there does seem to be that sort of tension, but I don't think that makes them puritanical, but rather choosier. And I do get the sense that perhaps you know, the initial stage of the sexual revolution was perhaps the least choosy time yeah, yeah. in the history of sex. Yeah, I think that's such a spot on observation. Like loads of things are swirling around each other. So the Me Too stuff and changes in culture around it. You know, you take someone saying, I don't want to see sex scenes in a movie. I mean, that's obviously the more extreme end. But what's often happening is that people are applying a more critical lens to how a sex scene is shot for instance. You know, there won't be a lot of criticism when they feel that it doesn't have a male gaze, yeah. but they'll be much more critical for it does. It's just a more sophisticated understanding of the intention behind something. And then that's wrapped up in these data sets about sort of what's sometimes called like a sex recession, you know, about, about a decline from which 
too many conclusions are drawn and attached to particular segments of the population. I think all of these things are whirling around each other. Uh, four, then. Millennials are all pronoun obsessives with fluid genders and sexualities. Yeah, interesting. So in terms of the pronouns, there's a really big cohort difference here, as you would expect. Mm, mm, right? Mm, it, it, it's entirely intuitive, and it's exactly what you would think. So about three quarters of uh, Gen Z say that they know someone who uses non-binary pronouns. And obviously that falls very, very significantly to uh, just over 30% for, for boomers. And you would also imagine with those boomers that in lots of those cases, it very well may be their kids or their grandkids or their friends, you know what I mean, when they answer mm -hmm. those questions. So you see the same thing with the opinions. Young people in Britain are about twice as likely to think that a person should be able to identify as a different gender to the one they're born in. Interestingly, in the US, that is not the case. In the US, their positions are generally more liberal on this issue anyway, but actually there's no age distinction in the US. There's huge distinctions, obviously, for Democrat supporter, Republican supporter, all of that mm. kind of thing, but there's no age distinction in the US, whereas in the UK, there is. That's interesting, I think. And that's not broadly indicative of how things work, because you look at things like abortion for US, UK, and the UK positions are much, much, much more liberal in every age mm -hmm. group you know, than in the US. So there's something quite interesting going on there. Then you get stuff around sexuality and the fluidity there. And it's quite, I mean, like the, the headline figure looks quite shocking, right? So only 54% of 18 to 24 year olds would define themselves as exclusively straight. So basically half, you know, half are saying I'm not exclusively straight. Mm. And that seems like a revolution in human sexuality, right? Interestingly, by the way, uh, only seven in 10 of the general population say that about themselves, which I find like a staggeringly small... Set, mm. right? You would have thought it would be 9 out of 10 or, yeah, yeah. or something. Uh, however, it isn't. It's 7 out of 10 of the general population. So 18 to 24 years, well below uh, the general population in that. But then something interesting happens when you look at the historic data. And the historic data on this is obviously messy because you didn't have sort of Victorian era surveys of like, how would you define the fluidity of your sexuality, sir? But it does exist. I mean, we have you know the famous Alfred Kinsey, right, who did the sort of sex surveys in the 40s, really forward looking. I mean, it, it probably wouldn't stand up to current methodology, but it's based on thousands of surveys with men. His book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, brilliant title, from 1948, found that 37% of US males had had some homosexual experience during their lives. 13% of them had been predominantly homosexual for at least hmm. three years. It gives you so far ahead of the curve. It's extraordinary that he could think of sexuality as something that could change over time. You know, in 1948, that he was thinking of it in those terms. He wasn't just asking for these two categories. One of the worst boomer myths, although Philip Larkin was not a boomer, um, was sexual intercourse began in 1963. Because he was obviously older and he was jealous of the boomers. And like, oh, they're all in sex. But actually, you know, the, the, the kind of date shows, like the 50s was like way sexier than people huh. imagined. And, huh. and, and even before, like you're talking about, like Kinsey is studying. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, people are having a lot more sex. And it, it, you didn't need like the Chatterley ban. Right. Like there's, there's what's happening at the, at the top line of society where you're not seeing like nudity on screen, for example. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that people aren't having sex. There's yes. a real sense of yeah. just like, well, you know, the 50s were very black and white and people had sex with like sheets over the top. <laughs> and you know, suddenly 963 comes along and it's like the fucking wah wah pedal kicks in. <laughs> not true. <laughs> okay, five. There's last one. Millennials believe in cancel culture. It's really complicated. 
Like to break it down into component parts, right? On social justice issues, there's a really clear cohort difference. You know, so I mean, you know, I mean, th- th- there's there's surveys on would you mind if your relative married a black person, which the answers are like it, it's shockingly high levels, really quite late into the day. You know, yeah. even when I was growing up, so in 1994, 35% of baby boomers said that they would mind. It was quite quite startling findings. And needless to say, those figures have come right down by cohort. That obviously also it's a period effect, it's declining for all groups. Same with immigration. Like you look at sort of people thinking that immigration is a good thing, it's the same. The lines are all going in the same direction. You know, people are very skeptical of immigration till around sort of 2014 in the UK. And then for reasons we don't quite fully understand yet, there's a really strong period effect of people starting to believe in the positive effects of immigration. But again, you can clearly see each line for each generation, you know, mapped out by cohort. So that's there. On cancel culture specifically, it gets quite murky. And so the best stuff from this is from Pew in the US. And they ask people, you know, what do you think is more important, feeling safe online or being able to speak freely? So basically safety versus Mm -hmm. free speech, the classic sort of thing. And it would seem to stand up to what we would expect, which is that for teens, 62% said that it was more important to feel safe online versus 38% who said it was more important to be able to speak freely. What's interesting, though, is 18 to 29-year-olds of all groups in society were the most supportive of free speech. Right. Oh, okay. 57 to 42%, by far the most supportive. You want to know the one group in society that was closest to the teens in prioritizing safety over free speech? Over 60s? Yeah, the over 65s. Almost identical results. They just like clocked in. It is a sort of gap over the top. Now, I don't think that when, that when people are talking about offensive content, I'm not sure that these two groups are talking no. about the same kind of offensive content. But weirdly enough, they are having the same debate. Um, Helen Andrews. The, the conservative writer, she says, the boomers' preoccupation with oppression, identity, and grievance would create many bullies because it turns out that thinking of yourself as a victim can make you heedless of the ways your actions victimize others. This sounds like the classic critique of millennials. Yes, exactly. It sounds identical. And then she says, oh, well, millennials seem intent on making the boomers' same mistakes. <laughs> I said, well, hang on, this is, this is a political position. You're not really distinguishing between the millennials and the boomers. Mm. You're basically going, oh, they're still obsessed with uh, identity politics and, and, and grievance politics, and it makes them behave very, very badly, you know, and they're into cancel culture and all that lot. Yeah. So what she's actually saying is, I don't like the left, or her, she <laughs> yes, caricatures yes. the left. That's not boomers or, or millennials. So that seems to me like maybe a lot of what is going on here and this is what is a generational conflict, is often just a political conflict. What is more important is still your ideological position, your political sympathies rather than your generational ones. And that sometimes you get this very crude idea that sort of, well, the old people are conservative and the young people are liberal. Mm-hmm. You know, very, very broad brush. Okay, yes, yeah. in some areas. But it's absolutely useless in, in really explaining what's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, think of class, right? What happens when you apply a class lens to this shit? Like, you know, if, if you are a millennial with parents with lots of money, it kind of doesn't really matter, right? You know, the fact that house prices are out of control. In fact, what's going to happen is they're about to assist you to secure some of your own assets as they continue to experience sort of, you know, completely unjustifiable property booms. It, once you apply that lens, 
it goes without saying that, like, you know, someone from a low-income family who's 25 has much more in common with someone from a low-income family who happens to be 70 right now than they do with someone from a high-income family who's 25. You know, I mean, th th there is a real limitation to what this stuff can show you. But it does also show you some quite interesting things, especially where it has a very pronounced effect. Well, to wrap up, I suppose what we're looking at and the problem that we find with this is that there is um, this idea that generational differences turn into generational warfare. Uh, there's a fascinating uh, magazine article from Life in 1968, which you, you can find online, called The Generation Gap. Quite a new mm. phrase invented in 1962. And it's co-written by Ernie Floodell, who's 42, and his 20-year-old nephew, Richie Lauber. Uh, and they're basically trying to work out, they alternate sections of the piece and they're trying to work out how to talk to each other and young Richie says whenever Ernie and I argue about politics we inevitably polarize our positions Ernie always seems to come out of our arguments sounding like a staunch conservative hmm. Ernie spits it's fairly clear that Ernie's pretty liberal <laughs> and I was thinking well you know it's the more that we sort of talk and they're basically going we hate this idea of the generation gap but we kind of we kind of participate in it it's 1968 you can understand like mm -hmm. why and what I liked about Bobby Duffy's book was that it really is a plea for us to sort of yes. to get on better because there's no reason why we can't in in OK Boomer uh, Jill Filipovich says most people in surveys millennials with boomer parents say they like their parents mm. they don't like boomers as a mass yes. but they like their own parents well doesn't that say something if you like the individual yet sort of demonize the group that perhaps there's a falsehood in play. I am susceptible to it sometimes, though. You know, I mean, I think after you came from there was that real whammy of like Brexit, which did have a significant cohort effect when you looked at the sort of voting patterns. And where, you know, whenever you saw sort of interviews and surveys and sort of focus groups, it was, there was a lot of going back. You know, it's like, we're going to get it back to how it was before. And of course, that's what you would see with Donald Trump's well, make America great again. You know, mm. I will go back to the 50s now. Thank you very much. Against the expressed wishes of the young. And then when that was followed almost like day by day mm. with COVID, it was like, oh, no, the young have to just give up on education now and stay home and lose yeah. some of the best years of their life so that we can protect older people from a disease that affects them much more significantly than it does the young. It's really hard to not fall into that kind of, yeah. that sense of generational injustice narrative, right? Because it just feels very profound and very, very convincing. Yeah, I mean, there are real reasons there. There are solid reasons. We've talked about them. You know, you can talk about kind of a certain sort of a certain arrogance. You can talk about there is a, you know, obviously the clash of values at times. There are real economic grievances. But... You know, I, I, I like Bobby Duffy's call for equals intergenerational solidarity. He talks about age segregation yes. and looking at generations as an identity and that we would treat that like you would treat other identities. It's like, well, you wouldn't be in favor of racial segregation. Mm -hmm. You would think, oh, this is actually, this is a real problem. Yeah. And yet it seems to be okay for people to write books that are like, fuck boomers, fuck millennials. Mm -hmm. And we've almost accepted that the fact that there is this growing divide is something that we should sort of feed rather than fix. It's funny. I think the reason it's acceptable to, to do it in that way is for the same reason that it doesn't really work, which is that actually it's really hard to get a generational war going for, for the very, very profoundly obvious reason that you get old. 
And so as a young person, you're like, well, I don't want to slag off and take away too mm. much from pensions, for instance, because I kind of want one when I get mm. a little bit older. It's not like, you know, your race. It's not like your gender. <laughs> you know, it's really distinct because you you are going to travel through these. Uh, you, you will stay a millennial, but, you know, you will travel through the age range. Yeah. And so when it comes to the political sort of processes that are applying to people at a different age, you do have a sense of solidarity, a kind of John Rawlsian sense of a sort of veil of ignorance, of a, of a kind of universality to your experience, or at least you hope so. The thing to plea for, I think, is in that realm of solidarity, but it's not just about, you know, the young stopping themselves from going into that fuck you boomer mentality. I think it also has to be about older voters having a sense that, you know, whether it's on housing, whether it's whether it is, you know, on pensions or, or certainly whether it's on the variations that we see in taxation, whether it's, you know, on income tax against national insurance, for instance. And certainly when it comes to environmental policy, mm. you really do have to be thinking about generations that come after you because they, they are kind of your kids and grandkids, you know, really? like it's you know, not it's working not just out the next well. generation. It's like yeah. if you're being, you complain about millennials, you complain about generation says, you know, they're at the vanguard of the future. Mm -hmm. The future is going to keep on going. There's going to be more and more generations. And so mm -hmm. when it comes to like, it, does your country have the infrastructure it needs? Uh, can we care for the, you know, every section of the population? Is the planet going to be habitable? You know, that seems to be much greater than if you're annoyed by their pronouns. Because <laughs> it really is about thinking about the future. It is, it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of Origin Story. You can see all of our many sources in the show notes and give us feedback via the Patreon page or on Twitter at Origin Storycast. Uh, we couldn't do all of that research without the support of our Patreon backers. So if that's you, thank you so much. And if it isn't, but you would like to join up, you can go to patreon.com slash originstorypod for episodes a week early, bonus episodes, merchandise, early ticket access for live events, uh, spiritual fulfillment and such like. Patrons, the next episode is landing in your inbox right about now. And it's on the life of times of John Maynard Keynes, the man who can lay some claim to having invented modern left-wing economics. Origin Story Season 4 is written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Simon Williams. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Music is by Jade Bailey, and art direction is by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.